Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. For posterity. So, uh, what I want to centre on tonight is uh, the body, really, and just uh, show you how, in the Buddha's teaching, the body is so important. Just our physicality, you know. Um, the first thing is to understand what he means by dukkha. Uh, so this word translates literally as hard to bear, but we translate it variously as what well, it used to be translated as suffering. But these days people prefer unsatisfactoriness. <coughs> but it's basically the whole gamut of human misery, you know, from the from the smallest little irritation to <laughs> to um, existential angst. So it's the whole the whole stretch of human. Uh, misery is included in this word dukkha see? and um, I think one one thing we might confuse dukkha with is uh, ordinary uh, pain, the pain of the body so he talks about uh, dukkha dukkha see? <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is the suffering of ordinary uh, physical pain see? and um, once, we, once we're clear that the process of liberation isn't about getting rid of physical pain, um, then uh, you know, it, 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 it becomes more possible. Because you, you can't imagine the body not having pain, for heaven's sake. <laughs> so he himself had pain. Uh, there's a lovely bit in the scriptures where he takes, tell, asks Ananda to take over because he's, he's got a bad ache in the back. And he, he falls ill, as you know. Uh, in fact, he died in the, in the end from uh, gastroenteritis, you know, from eating food that was off. <laughs> so it's not as though, uh, you know, he didn't he he stopped suffering physical pain, hmm? but uh, that's not where the suffering lies. So as long as we're clear on that, hmm? and then he points out, of course, in the second noble truth that it's desire which is the cause of suffering. What he means by that is the psychological trigger, hmm? and it's really here that we're looking at uh, suffering. How we constantly form this um, relationship with the world of either wanting it or not wanting it. Okay. So there's the suffering in the body caused by the body, huh? and the suffering in the body caused by the mind, and that's what we mostly come across when we sit. I mean. Normally speaking, if you're sitting, if your posture is comfortable and uh, you've overcome the knees business, you know, the exploding knees, then uh, it's normally just the tightness, the sickliness, the, the shakings, all that sort of stuff. All that becomes the mind in the body. Hmm? And it's being able to distinguish that and being able uh, not to be afraid of it, uh, to get over your fear of what's coming up, you see. Um, and sometimes you might make the mistake of saying, oh, well, this is physicality, because when I move, it goes. <laughs> but as soon as you sit, you see, 
this uh, energy, this uh, chi that we you know, talk about this thing in the morning, it rising up the body, you see. And as it rises up the body, it starts shaking these parts that are um, held within the body, and parts of the body, and the stomach, and the abdomen, and the chest, and the head, and the shoulders, all these areas. And as that shakes, that's what we experience. We experience this pain. But it would be wrong to think of it as uh, pain which is going to cause us more suffering. This is the pain of release. Hmm? So, you know, if you think of a clenched fist around a case, so we don't have that anymore because of wheelies. But if you really want to know what, <laughs> what it's like carrying a big case, well, you know, fill one up with bricks and walk around with it for a while. And then when you let go of it, you get this excruciating pain as your hand sort of opens up. But actually, that's the hand releasing this, this pent-up pain, which we're not aware of, you see, when it's clenched. So uh, all these pains that we get in the body through meditation, which we uh, can be pretty sure they're not physical, see, um, are this, this release, a release of dukkha, as the Buddha uh, would mean, this internal suffering, you see. And the interesting thing is that the body's like a, like a, like a sounding chamber. It makes things worse. It makes things very obvious. Uh, you might, in your meditation, you know, when, when you are deep and profoundly meditating, you might actually experience the separation of the mind from the body, of the mental state of depression from what it's actually doing to the body, from anger from what it's actually doing. And, you, uh, and that's, uh, these sorts of little experiences point out to you that the mind is more subtle, it's not so painful. It's when it touches the body and the burning begins and the tightness begins and, and the disease starts, the psychosomatic disease, that we, we suddenly realize or we suddenly are in contact with the strength of that mental process within the body. See? So the body is, um, is subject to mental states, you know, and it can disturb that cellular base, but we know that, don't we? So the body, in a sense, is is mirroring back to us the mental state, it makes it very obvious. And in, in, in that case, it's like a sounding, it's like, a, it's like an alarm bell. See? So if, for instance, you come home every night from work with a headache, something's wrong. Yeah? I mean, you, if you blame the work, that's ridiculous. There's something wrong with the way you're working, which is causing a headache. It can be as simple as that. Hmm? If, you, if, you're, if you're suffering a lot from indigestion, then maybe you ought to look at the amount you're eating and when, <laughs> and when you're eating it. There's a constant drip feed, you know. I think they call it um, grazing. You know, it's got <laughs> grazing throughout the day. Biscuits and things like that. So, um, that's the one, that's the main thing to be clear about, right? The body has its own suffering. And the mind, is su the mind has its own suffering. But they are like milk and water. See, they saturate each other. And that's why... Um, you get the psychosomatic diseases. Now, in the Buddha's biography, um, you know, he goes through this leaving of home, right, which is a tearing away from sensual pleasure. Um, there was, of course, there must have been some misery about leaving his family and his newborn child. But something had happened within his psychology which... Um, made it seem vain, made it, seem, made it feel as though it's going nowhere. And I think that um, one of our 
motivators in the spiritual life is to see the, the emptiness of sensual pleasure in itself. Okay. Um, I always like um, I always like to quote um, what's his name now? Woody uh, yeah, Woody Allen. Thank <laughs> you. Always got, it's funny because you know my little quote. <laughs> and he says, uh, "Just having sex is an empty experience, but as empty experiences go." <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that, you know, that's it, isn't it? Unless, unless sensuality, unless simple sensual experiences have some greater meaning, then, then they're fatuous, they're empty. You know? I mean, you enjoy them for a while, but then they become sort of empty in themselves. So there must have been that feeling, and also uh, a search for something more meaningful, right? And in his own, his, his own uh, process, it was this whole problem of suffering. See? So that's what drove him away to to seek the end of suffering, right? uh, and <clears throat> he tries to escape it by by practicing these jhanic states, these absorption states. Uh, but of course, they only last as long as you're in them. And when you when you come out, you, you're still depressed and horrible. However, he then sort of gave up on that and practiced these mortification exercises, mainly not eating. It seems mainly sort of starving himself. And, uh, you know, he talks about being able to hold his spine through his stomach. You tried that. And he, uh, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> certainly can't get anywhere near mine. And the, pr the, the whole idea there, you see, is that it's the body which is the problem, right? And you get this in spiritual traditions, don't you? You know, it's the body. It's, it's sex which is the problem. It's, 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 it's hunger which is the problem. It's sort of a natural appetite to the body. And somehow you have to train the body. You have to um, batten it down. And you have to beat it up, and 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 then somehow the soul is released. You see. And of course, uh, if you've done a long fast, uh, you know some definitely beyond three days, <clears throat> you do you do feel this liberation from from appetite. Yeah? You feel very light. The mind's very you know sort of at ease. You feel at ease. Of course, the body's eating itself. And that's why. <laughs> <laughs> it's given up. It's gone into famine mode, um, and that was the that was the sort of basic understanding how to overcome desire. See, it's not as though the Buddha was the you know the only one who said desire was a suffer was was the cause of suffering. It was well known at those those times. Even Socrates says it. Right? Um, I shouldn't say even Socrates. Socrates also said it. <laughs> He's our hero, isn't he? Western hero, Socrates. So. Uh, this uh, this idea of um, somehow that it was that the fault was in the body mm, just drove him to this uh, really unhappy end. And when he realised he wasn't getting anywhere, you know, that's that's when he he went off. And um, it was only because you know somebody gave him some rice pudding and he, he remembered something in childhood. At least that's the way I see the story. Uh, this 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 incident in childhood where he's watching his father in the prowling ceremony. And it's that state of mind which is the, which which opens up for him another avenue, which is not so much how do I escape suffering, you know, uh, how can I jump out of it and find myself in a different place, but how does suffering arise? If you can see how suffering arises, surely you can see how to put an end to it, and that was why we call him self enlightened. See, it was that 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 uh, that um, you know brings about his success. Is liberation. 
So the Buddha goes through that, you see, and then eventually uh, he doesn't dismiss the body then, you see. It's actually very much deeply part of his teaching. So the whole of the Satipatthana discourse, that's the discourse on how to establish this mindfulness that we keep talking about, yeah, leading to insight. The whole first part is about contemplation of the body. Right? And the first part is, of course, about the breath. And you see, he says here, um, well, I turn the wrong page. Um, come to the um, He says here, So he's gone to the f- here. Here, a bhikkhu, we can say a meditator, gone to the forest, to the root of a tree, an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, and established mindfulness in front of him. That means establishing mindfulness, you know, straight on. Um, ever mindful, he breathes in, mindfully breathes out. And he's on the breath, right? And then he breathing in long, he understands I breathe in long. In other words, you're in contact with the physicality of the breath. You know it's long, you know it's short, you know it's tight, you know it's loose. Yeah? You're, you're actually right there with it. And then he says, that, you know, breathing out a short breath, he understands. And then he trains himself. See, the, the word training comes in. So first it's just mere contact, but then he trains himself, breathing in, experiencing the whole breath. He, he, here it's translated the whole body of the breath, but it's like you're staying with the breath, you see, and you're experiencing the, the breath, the whole expiration of the breath, okay? And then it's breathing in to tranquilize the body formation. So here he's telling us that just by watching the breath like this, the body itself begins to calm down. Breathing out, tranquilizing the body sensation, right? And then he gives this uh, infra- uh, this um, image. He's, he's very good at giving us metaphors, um, but we'll leave that. And then he says he abides contemplating, you see, this breath um, either... Um, in its ex- in its internal factors, you're just watching the breath, you're feeling the breath, uh, experiencing the breath. You can even do it outwardly by observing somebody breathe. And he abi- or he abides um, contemplating the body as arising factors. He abides contemplating this body as vanishing. In other words, one breath completes, and that's it. It's finished. It's gone. You never get that breath again. The next breath out. So in that way, you get this this feeling that we're we're on this knife edge of time. Right, there's only this moment. Breath comes, breath goes, that's it. Yeah? You just hope for the next one. Yeah? Or else he is mindful of there is this body, establishing, he establishes in him the extent necessary for bare knowledge and, and mindfulness. In other words, you, you're now drawn into the breath and you're, you're there steady with it for insight to arise. You see? So you can see the process, getting in touch with the body, the breath as body, as feeling, as sensation. And then you begin to realize that this sensation is just arising and passing away. See? And then you're actually there just watching this. And as that concentration grows, the focusing, the steadiness of attention, with that curiosity, you begin to have these slightly deeper insights into what the body is. Then, there's a, then he goes on to about the four postures. So when I'm walking, the, 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 the meditator understands I am walking. In other words, you're aware of walking. When you're standing, you're aware of standing. When you're sitting, you're aware of sitting. When you're lying down, you're aware of lying down. It's simple, see? But it's always centered on the body. It's not some airy-fairy imaginative state. 
So you're actually aware of the body in its sitting posture, aware of the body walking and so on. And then he, then he goes on to just daily activities. I mean, here it's sort of centered on, on the monastic life. So he's full awareness of wearing his robes, carrying his outer robe and bowl. He acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting. No, you're right there with it. This is the body. Yeah? He acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating. See, we'd rather be reading magazines. Hmm? He acts in full awareness walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep. See, can you catch your last breath? Difficult. Waking up, can you catch the first breath? Difficult. Talking and keeping silent. Uh, now you have to remember here that this awareness isn't self-awareness. You don't, don't, uh, often we get confused about that because in the meditation practice, sitting practice, we become the observer, the feeler. So there's a sense of self-awareness. So remember that's a split consciousness really. Yeah? One minute you're doing and next minute you're aware of yourself. It's a little mirror image going on in the mind. So when he's talking about when he's talking about awareness here, he's not talking about trying to be aware of oneself doing something. It means just being absorbed into what you're doing, right? just being aware. This isn't difficult for us to understand. I mean, uh, DVDs, films. Yeah, you turn it on, and then you wake up two hours later, huh? and then you say, oh, "That was a good, that was a good film." You know, <laughs> where have you been for two hours? You've been absorbed into the film. What's the difference between that? and uh, an absorption which is going to bring about an insight. It's your intention, see? So if your intention is to enjoy the film, you know, because you're a film buff and all that, and you, and you just want to break, <laughs> and that's then what you get back is an attachment to films as, as dummies, yeah? You need something in your mouth to suck. So uh, if you go into film with more the intention of uh, a right attitude, Right, which would be something to learn, something to understand, then you come out with the understanding. Hmm? I mean, it, a film itself can engender a right attitude. Yeah? Have you seen that film Spirited Away? Yeah, see, wonderful, isn't it? See, and just watching that, you don't have to have a right intention to watch it. The film itself has the right intention for you. So when you come out, you just feel lifted by it and you know a lovely lovely experience same with music you see whatever music you're listening to it's going in isn't it it's affecting you the books you read see even the adverts you look at you'll be careful eh? so everything and remember an act of attention is an act of intention once you've grasped that then then you have to then, then you, you you're wary see? as soon as you look at something it's gone in Then uh, he, then the next section is about the foulness of the body. So that's what we did this morning a little bit. And you know, he's you know, uh, in the body there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, <laughs> kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, contents of the stomach, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat. Shall I go on? Fat, tears, <laughs> grease spittle, snot, oil of the joint, I mean he's, he's got it all there, you know, in urine, he ends up with urine. And just as though there were a bag with an opening at both ends full of all sorts of grains such as hill rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet and white rice, and a man with good eyes were to open it and review it, thus he would say, well this is hill rice, this is. See? So it's a case of getting in contact with the body as a, f 
uh, as foulness. Now that gives us a sort of downer on the body, so we think we have to hate the body because it's foul. But it's not that. It's a case of, you know, accepting the body as body, as it is. And what you're looking at, which we did this morning, is this uh, sense of disgust, sense of dislike. So is that necessary? See? Uh, you know, people who work in hospitals, nurses, people who help nurses, they have to get over that sort of thing, don't they? You know? So that there, there isn't that sort of reaction to blood and, and, and you know, people with incontinence and stuff like that. You can't be a nurse, can you? Can't, can't do it. Um, and that, yes, of course, when we do that exercise on foulness, and you can do it very quickly, you can do it any time of the day, you know, it's not... These, these exercises are not, not specifically... You don't have to do them for hours on end or something, you know. It's like... It's like just a moment's reflection. But that has to be balanced with the importance of the body, you see. Or else it gets, it gets too much. It has to be balanced by pouring loving kindness into the body. See? So there's an incident in the scriptures where uh, these set of monks have been in the, in the jungle and they've been practicing foulness of the body to detach, to, to get this sense of non-attachment to the body. Right? That non-attachment was now highly developed the body but when the Buddha saw them he realized there was something missing which was this loving kindness so he gave them the practice of loving kindness and they all became liberated that's the story so you can see it's a it's a very strong practice for de for non-attachment but then somehow you've got to re-engage okay? and then finally to sort of really rub our noses in it there's the nine channel ground contemplates <laughs> and this brings us to you know this, this core problem about death and dying so here you see he says because um, in those days you know they used to throw the, the, the dead bodies on the channel grounds you know wrap them in white cloth, cloth and just leave them there uh, for animals or nature just to slowly corrupt you know in the um, commentaries for those people who want to do this exercise it's difficult these days of course you have to find somebody to kill and throw them out there and have a look at them and you know, <laughs> watch them <laughs> sort of go. there's a lovely um, a lovely direction of not to sit windward <laughs> yeah so he says um, <clears throat> what the meditator is saying is this body too this body too my body is of the same nature it will be like that it is not exempt from that fate not exempt from that fate from that destiny the body the body has a destiny. As soon as, as soon as there's conception, there has to come this moment where there's decease. That's why it's very good to visit uh, graveyards, you know. Oh yes, once a week, walk around the graveyard. See, just as this body is, mine will be. Now, it brings a certain sobriety to life, you know. And then he goes through the whole thing. You see, um, we were to see a corpse thrown aside devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, various kinds of worms, see? This is what happened in those days. Good, huh? Interesting stuff. A skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews. I mean, he's obviously done this exercise. Yeah? <laughs> a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood held together with sinews. A skeleton without flesh and blood held together with sinews. Disconnected bones scattered in all directions. Here a hand bone, here a foot bone, a shin bone. 
And again, a, a corpse thrown aside, bones bleached white, the colour of shells, bones heaped up, more than a year old, bones rotted, crumbling to dust. See? Seeing the whole process from somebody who was alive and jumping around and full of full of the joie de vivre. And there he is, just a, a heap of dust, you see. And even if we can't actually, you know, find somebody um, who might um, do this for us, uh, <laughs> at least we can go through that process of imagination and uh, and that's why I think visiting cemeteries can be a good exercise so there you see uh, right there in the in this major describe is the jewel of the collection that's what it's known as uh, the Buddha is sort of pointing out to the importance of the body as a meditative uh, object and um, this brings us really to the Anatta doctrine, the doctrine about not-self. Um, the Buddha never says, he, he doesn't make the statements, there is no self, you see. The teaching is always about what is a self. Um, what constitutes a self? Now one of the important things, the two important things about a self was that it was permanent, it didn't change. Right? And it was in control. So now, when you look at the body, we have this dualistic relationship. So we'll say something like, I have a headache. So this I has a headache. But when you're really bad, you say, I am ill. So you see there's a, there's a sort of connection there, you see. And as soon as you say, I have a headache, you've got a, you've got a pain, you've got suffering. If you say, as you, as you might do in meditation, there's a headache, you've already abstracted yourself from it. If you say the body's ill, you've already found a different relationship just by saying the body's ill. As soon as you say, I am ill, then that's it, you're ill. You are ill. <laughs> and the suffering arises. So uh, just, just you know, going over certain experiences of the body, what do we actually know of the body, you see? It's a funny thing. You walk around and you, you really do think most people think they are the body think they are the body well I was once with a friend and his father was there he was a, getting to be a slightly elderly and I, we were talking about Buddhism that just came up in the conversation and I said to him well you know the body's not real and this old fellow sort of barked at me yes he did he was dead in a couple of years <laughs> but he, he couldn't handle that statement the body's not real yeah and there's a, um, an unquestionable, for most people, there's an unquestionable identity with the body. They never, they never, it doesn't occur to them to even think that they're not. And this, um, when you ask yourself, well, what, what do I know of the body? Like, for instance, at this present time, so I'm told, anyway, so I believe, because the science tells me, the marrow of my bones is creating red blood corpuscles. Have you ever, have you ever experienced red corpuscles coming out of your bones? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like when, when you look into this body, you realize that actually you haven't a clue what's going on. Have you ever experienced one cell dying and another cell appearing? Have you ever, I mean, with, you presume, you see, uh, when I breathe, oxygen comes in, carbon dioxide goes out. 
Have you ever experienced that? If they hadn't told you, you wouldn't know, would you? I mean, remember, there was a time when, uh, you know, before Harvey and, and, and those people, we thought blood sort of swashed around the body. It didn't, didn't go through the veins or anything. It was just a sort of bubble of blood. And, and that's why when something was wrong, you stuck a leech on it. Because they thought there was too much blood there. So you sucked the blood out and you felt okay. <laughs> so if you look into the body, just ask yourself little questions like that, you know, then you realise actually you're an alien. You're, st you're stuck in this, in this um, body and actually you haven't a clue what's, what's going on. Huh? And that's why illnesses suddenly catch us. We don't know. We don't even know the body's falling ill sometimes. So those sorts of, you know, that's, this body is not me, not mine. Just little reflections like that. And uh, then you look at the changing nature of the body. See, that's something we, we only catch every so often. You know, like suddenly you're middle-aged, you know, your face has dropped. <laughs> suddenly you reach 60 and your face has dropped. Something else has happened. It's like, normally speaking, not even aware of it. You look at your face in the mirror and it's, it's the same one you had yesterday. We don't see this constant little change until, until something, <laughs> until one day you look at, oh God. <laughs> so uh, just, I mean, what, why, why do we drive ourselves to these little shocks? See, if every day you looked in the mirror and you thought, hmm, that wasn't there yesterday, is it? Remember, this face changes, your whole body changes every seven years. So every time you look at your face in the mirror, just remind yourself you weren't here yesterday. You weren't here seven years ago. Every, every atom in the body, seemingly, uh, is exchanged. So it's just those little reflections every so often. That, you know, there is aging, you see. And it's inescapable. Absolutely inescapable, you know. That brings terror to the heart. There is time. The, the arrow of time just moves towards dissipation. It's the second law of thermodynamics, isn't it? Going from <laughs> order to disorder. You, can't, you cannot stop it. It just, it just moves that way. And these little reflections uh, are sort of frightening. But that, the fear and the, the frightening parts of it is, is the measure of our, of our delusion. See? So what you do is you, you, you feel the fear. You see, you feel the fear. You allow the fear to express itself, you see. And then slowly the fear begins to dissipate. As the fear dissipates, so is your delusion about what's real and what isn't real. Then there's dependency, you know, where hard, you know, it's only, and in a society that, like ours, which is, you know, uh, most people don't, don't have problem getting hold of food, water, uh, shelter, you know. But um, when we look at these disasters around the world, you see, what, a, what an awful suffering, you know, like these floods in Australia kicked everybody out of their homes. And suddenly, you know, or, or famines, you know, or... Uh, just any natural disaster that you see where people are just thrown completely out of their comfort zone and of course it's massive suffering it really is very painful isn't it you only have to imagine yourself you see if you lost everything today and you went out on the streets huh? it's tough huh so then you get that sense of the body the body is so dependent on what the environment can give the food the shelter the housing the medicine so that means that it's not me, not mine. See, the idea of me and mine is that I'm in control. Eh? I'm in control of the body. 
is me. See? But then I find that actually, you know, the body is has its, uh, you know, I don't have that complete control. Full stop. It's very similar to, you know, when you drive a car. So when you drive a car, uh, you do have the impression that you're in control. Yeah? And then it stops. <laughs> or it's uh, a tyre burst, or, you know, the electrics go. The light stops. So it's just like the body. And yet when you're driving it, you get this feeling of, you know, I'm in control. And it's when, the, it's when things go wrong that we're suddenly, you know, thrown back on ourselves, that in fact, we don't have this control. See? And, of course, in, in sort of working with the body like that, you know, what you're trying to do is establish an ease with it, you see, of this is the way it is, right? Not going against uh, the nature of things. And that's what the self does. It always tries to concretize, to grab things, to hold it as it always is. See, but as soon as you're you're with the idea that things are in a process, things are changing, and you just go with it. So there's a sort of release. Hmm? There's a lovely phrase from the Buddha about uh, detachment, see, or non-attachment. That's the better word, non-attachment. Um, when, when you really grasp, I mean, at that really deep, fundamental, inner understanding about impermanence, the I is impermanent, everything is impermanent. See, there's nothing in the world worth holding on to. And if you take a phrase like that, which I'm going to suggest uh, we do on Monday, in that, on spiritual reading, and you just play around with that phrase, there is nothing in the world worth holding on to. There's nothing in the world worth holding on to. There's nothing in the world worth holding on to. See? You play around with it. And it, it's like it's like a little drip feed. It slowly begins to realise that there is nothing in the world worth holding on to. <laughs> and that comes a sense of relief. Because in loosening your grip you lose nothing. All you lose is the tightness of your grip. Because the world is as it is. And that's what we mean by non-attachment, right? That's what we mean by non-attachment. So, uh, when it comes to the actual practice of it, um, it's always to undermine these delusions, right? A delusion at least is, is, is half gone once you realise it is a delusion. I mean, you're, you're sort of almost there, really. Then it's just the practice of bringing that to mind uh, whenever an occasion arises, right? You don't have to go searching the dead bodies it's just when one arises that's the time to <laughs> that's the time to contemplate dead bodies and that's what we did in this exercise you see so we start by undermining these wrong uh, relationships first this whole area about uh, the about the relationship to the body as mine the disgust with it uh, the way that we're affected by how we view ourselves on the on that um, line of being uh, impossibly ugly to impossibly beautiful yeah and where you sit on that line has effect on your self-esteem is what they tell you see how do you undercut that so that your that your self-esteem has nothing to do with how you look yeah? and then there's the contemplation of the body as pleasure so the body offers us beautiful you know pleasures uh, and, 
and through the ear, you know, the loveliness of music. And it's through sort of recognizing the attachment to that. See, and remember that you don't realize how attached you are to something until it disappears. You don't realize how important eyesight is to our well-being until we lose it. And so just contemplating these things. So should disaster hit us, should tragedy hit us, at least it doesn't come as something impossible. I always remember years and years and years ago, I can't remember now, but there was a policeman and he, was, he got into a shooting thing or something and lost a part of his legs. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.